When I was a kid, losing power in the house was always a little exciting. Let's play with flashlights. We can play cards by candlelight, you know, that kind of thing. It would be like that for a little bit, then we'd get bored, and then pretty soon the lights would come back on. Well, now that I'm an adult, having no electricity is anything but fun and games. Not only is it super inconvenient, it can actually get dangerous if it goes on for an extended period of time. Now, imagine that scenario and all the frustration and anger that comes with it and combine it with the knowledge that someone made it that way on purpose. In North Carolina, all schools in Moore County will be closed tomorrow after a massive power outage. The outage. More than 35,000 customers are waking up without power after gunfire left two substations damaged. This kind of attack raises a new level of threat. That's exactly what played out in Moore County, North Carolina last week. Two electric substations were damaged in what police are calling a targeted attack. My guest this week is CNN law enforcement correspondent Whitney Wilde, who rushed to North Carolina and spent days on the ground following the investigation. We talk about why authorities say the power grid is such an attractive target for extremists and what can be done to better protect it. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Ryan. Whitney, we're talking on Thursday afternoon. Power is back across Moore County, where you are. But can you take me back to the start of this? How did this all happen? So it was uh, Saturday night around 7 o'clock when the power went out in Moore County. Um, And we haven't gotten a definitive timeline from law enforcement yet, but... It was sometime in in either late Saturday afternoon or early evening when someone or multiple people basically opened fire on two substations in Moore County, knocking out power for, at that moment, up to 45,000 people throughout the county. We faced something last night here in Moore County that uh, we've never faced before. So law enforcement hasn't released that much detail, but what we do know is that at one of the locations, and this is the West End, North Carolina location, a gate was removed from one of the hinges. Uh, so presumably whoever the person is who shot at that was was able to get into that substation area basically by removing the gate. Evidence at the scene indicated that the uh, showed that the firearm had been used Uh, to disable the equipment. The difference at the other location, which is in Carthage, North Carolina, is that that's basically in a neighborhood. So that's where we've been for the last several days. And it's really easy to access that substation. The road is just steps from the substation. There are multiple homes around the area. Hmm. There's basically a, I'd call it like a big lawn or big, big grassy area where you could walk right up to the substation. The person that done this or the persons knew exactly what they were doing. Absolutely. And so once the power goes out, what is life like for the, the people there? What were those few days where there was just, you know, no power anywhere? It was really hard because for the first few days, it was unseasonably cold here. So overnight, it was dropping into the 30s and there were shelters open, but it was just really challenging for the people here. And over the next few days, you know, the weather ticked up and was actually unseasonably warm toward the end of the week. So that was helpful. Um, But it's it's really hard. Some people around here have generators. A lot of people don't. And the problem when you, you know, take out power like this in this way is that it's, it's unlike a storm where the protocols for fixing 
the equipment are pretty standard. Um, it's, it's faster to fix. I mean, some of that equipment was just destroyed and the, the way that Duke energy had to go about trying to repair that was much more difficult and a much more painstaking process than for a storm. And, you know, I think notably this happened completely out of the blue. No one was able to prepare for it with a storm that knocks out power. You have time to prep for that. You days in advance, typically, but these people had no warning and the power was just cut on a dime. And it, it's been extremely challenging for the people who are living here. How big of a deal is this? I mean, have you ever had experienced anything like this? Not really. I've never seen anything like it. I have a one-year-old, so it's very hectic. No lights, no power, can't really do nothing. One woman I spoke with said that she, in some cases, had to drive up to an hour to go bring groceries back to her home. Um, there's no, obviously, there's no refrigeration, so people are losing, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of products that they had been keeping in their homes. Another woman told me that she was staying at the shelter because she was basically too afraid to stay at home. She was, she was genuinely afraid for her safety if she stayed at home in the dark. At the end of the day. I would rather be somewhere where it's warm, where we have food, where we're taken care of, than to be somewhere where it's freezing cold and not knowing or wondering if, you know, through your sleep you're going to go into a epileptic shot from being so cold, you know? And then further, she was really concerned because her place of business has no power, and that means she can't work, and that means she's not being paid. How am I going to be able to pay my rent? How am I going to, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the landlord is still going to be like, where's my money? And especially for, you know, people here who are dealing with medical issues. You know, I spoke with one woman who was in the shelter overnight because she she needed power to basically power up a medical device that she relied on. Oh. So, you know, it's it's everything from needing refrigeration for your insulin to powering up medical devices that are critical for your care. So the the ripple effect of an incident like this can be really damaging. So, Whitney, I know you said law enforcement does not have all the details yet. They haven't identified a suspect, let alone a motive. But are there common themes that we've seen associated with threats against electric infrastructure in the past? Well, what law enforcement has repeatedly said over the last, I'd say, year or two is that domestic violent extremists recognize how vulnerable critical infrastructure is, and they find that to be a really attractive target. And if someone wants to cause mass mayhem really fast, this is a pretty easy way to do it. For all of the reasons that I had listed before, these substations are, are often pretty accessible. Um, if you can cause enough damage, it's going to be really hard to fix very quickly. Um, and domestic violent extremists have figured that out. And law enforcement is hyper concerned about the amount of rhetoric encouraging domestic violent extremists to attack critical infrastructure. So that's the first thing. Um, law enforcement sources have told my colleague, uh, John Miller, that one of the other threads that law enforcement here is digging into is, is the possibility that someone might be motivated to uh, to disrupt an LGBTQ event. And the reason that they are at least considering that as a possibility is because that has been an issue uh, throughout the country. There have been recent disruptions to LGBTQ events. Obviously, there was the shooting at Club Q. So a motivation 
uh, in that respect is something that law enforcement is hyper aware is a possibility. And notably on Saturday night, around the time that the power went out, there was a drag show scheduled in this county and that drag show was canceled. Is this something that is like explicitly being talked about in these, you know, extremist groups as, you know, a, a way to cause chaos? Like how direct is this in terms of the chatter that that's going back and forth online? It is direct and plain. I mean, basically, you know, domestic violent extremist groups are on the Internet calling for attacks on critical infrastructure. And it, and it is it is getting so bad that actually about two weeks before this shooting, the FBI had released a bulletin to private industry to warn domestic violent extremists are interested in attacking your critical infrastructure. And they, uh, you know, really did what they could to try to sound the alarm. And and actually what the FBI had been tracing in that case was people who saw an opportunity to to act upon a racial ideology, a, a racially motivated crime. So hmm. what the FBI concluded was domestic violent extremists believed if they attacked critical infrastructure, like the electrical grid, they would cause a societal breakdown and that would result in a race war. So the the motivations across the domestic violent extremism spectrum can be really, really broad, but the the mobilization to violence and ultimately the intention is all the same. It's to cause mayhem and it's motivated by either political ideology. On the other hand, sometimes these are driven by uh, personal grievance, but in the end, the damage is the same. And what is striking about this case is that this issue is not necessarily new. In California in 2013, the April attack occurred just before one in the morning. There was a similar case where someone attacked critical infrastructure, another electrical substation. The snipers first went into an underground vault and cut telephone cables. A half hour later, they sprayed the substation with bullets for nearly 20 minutes, knocking out 17 transformers, according The California case was much more complicated. However, in that case, there was no arrest. No fingerprints. It seemed like a professional job. To prevent a blackout, energy workers rerouted power, but it took nearly a month to make the repairs. And while that case methodically is totally different, the reality is these cases are difficult to solve when you have very little information to work with. Yeah, and you could just imagine like what would happen if this were to occur in a big city as opposed to kind of a more rural uh, community, like more county. But with all that said, what can be done here to prevent this in the future? Like what steps are officials in North Carolina and around the country taking to protect the electric grid? Well, it's a it's a good question. At the larger locations, um, our understanding is that there are much more robust security measures in place. But at these smaller substations, it's really difficult. At Duke Energy alone, there are hundreds of substations just like this, and they can't they can't put physical security at every single substation. Oh, We've been assured that gosh. there are other layers of security, although Duke Energy has declined to say what those layers might include. But you know, the there are a list of options that private industry and law enforcement might utilize. For example, they could do directional patrols. And, and this is something that happens when law enforcement recognizes a heightened threat for a specific individual. Rather than just posting somebody outside of a home, they might say, okay, whoever's on patrol in this area needs to swing by once an hour, twice an hour, whatever it is, to make sure that there is a visible presence there on a semi-regular basis, at least throughout the day. So that's one option. We have worked to 
organize and step up our protection of our infrastructure, particularly in the area of cybersecurity. But I think that each one of these substations may be somewhat unique. So we have to have a serious national conversation about protecting our critical infrastructure because this is unacceptable to have this many people without power for this long. I think it's pretty clear that this is this is proof that the concerns of the FBI, the concerns of DHS are valid and that it is easy to cause mass mayhem by targeting these critical infrastructure locations and people want to do it. So moving forward, Duke Energy has said that this case is going to inform how they approach security in the long run. Mm, It's fascinating. Whitney, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paola Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Abby Fentress-Swanson is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like the show, you can just leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the easiest way to give us a boost. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.